Steve Jobs just cuts right to the center of the the conflict that's at the heart of the IPO and just calls his bankers out on it. And it's just short, sweet, and it shows the man's brilliance. My guest today is Dakin Campbell. Dakin is the chief finance correspondent at Business Insider. He's the publication senior reporter covering Wall Street. Before that, he wrote for Bloomberg for more than a decade. His latest book is Going Public, How Silicon Valley Rebels Loosened Wall Street's Grip on the IPO and Sparked a Revolution. Dakin's book is a behind-the-scenes tour of the high-stakes world of IPOs and how a visionary group of startup executives, venture capitalists, and maverick bankers launched a crusade to upend the traditional IPO as we know it. I recently sat down with Dakin and we talked about the way the big Wall Street investment banks raise equity capital for companies and how the retail investor and the company going public get the short end of the stick. Dakin, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, since I read your book, I said, wow, this is really great stuff because there's so much about the IPO market that I thought I knew, but you you just show warts and all. So really, really fantastic job. Thank you very much. Folks, the name of the book is Going Public, How Silicon Valley Rebels Loosened Wall Street's Grip on the IPO and Sparked a Revolution. So before we begin, I, I want to go really, uh, really elementary here because you, the way you analyze IPOs, who the winners are, who the losers are, who the players are, give company example, really, really great stuff that I, I guarantee you most people on Wall Street don't even follow how this stuff is done. So first off, did it take you a while to get all the mechanics of how things are done and, and, and all of the shenanigans that take place? So I'll tell you, I've been writing about Wall Street for 15 years, and I was in the same position. I knew about IPOs. I read about them in the news, but I didn't really know the mechanics of how they worked and, and what happened in these back rooms. And so the process of writing this book was about two years beginning to end. And um, and so it was during that time that I really learned, uh, you know, how the mechanics worked and, and really educated myself on uh, on how IPOs really took place. Right. And who the winners are. I think that is really, really key because I think that's the whole premise of your book. You, I think the uh, IPO system was designed back in the 1920s. And uh, they're trying to use that today. And you still have investment banks telling you it's the best thing since sliced bread, right? That's right. Yeah. I mean, the modern IPO was really designed in the 1980s by a, a Goldman Sachs banker named Eric Dobkin. So that still means it's 40 years old. Uh, and obviously there were IPOs before the 1980s. They were just marketed and sold a little bit differently. So in the course of the book, I do go back in history, uh, in, in the history of the IPO market and, and look at how things have changed over time. And it's really um, the modern IPO as we know it, as we read about it, uh, came about in the mid to late 1980s. Right. And, you know, when I saw your book, I forgot uh, who introduced me to it. Uh, I think it was Mary Childs, who was a guest on the show a while back. Who Mary's wrote a, a good yeah, friend. Wrote a great um, book on Bill Gross. Um, and um, and uh, when I saw the title, I said, I got to have you on the show because so many of my subscribers, so many people that I know, uh, think buying an IPO is is like a ticket to wealth. And it's such a rigged game for the retail investor and also some institutional investors. Uh, 
that it makes no sense. So before I jump ahead of myself, and, and, and I, I'm, I'm just uh, excited because you have so much great stuff in here I want to talk about. What is an IPO? I just came from Mars. Explain it to me. Sure. So an IPO is the first time that a company sells shares to public market investors. And so as part of that, it gets listed on an exchange like the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ so that you and I, your listeners, my parents can buy uh, a, a slice of the profits from that company. Okay. Before that, companies are private and investors can still buy into those companies, but you have to be an accredited investor, which means you have, a, have to have a certain amount of wealth or you have to be an institution or, uh, or somebody who's more wealthy. So really an IPO is the first time that regular people can get access to the profits from some of these fast-growing companies, or from buying, any company. Right, from buying, but buying in the tech a, industry, it's some of these fast-growing companies. Buying a piece of their business, right? I want to be part of right. Airbnb. I could not have done that unless I was a private investor and had a real high net worth and, and happened to get into a good valuation, all those things which make it extremely prohibitive and know the right people to speak to. Here, I can get a piece of Airbnb. I've rent out my house, theoretically, uh, as Airbnb. I love the company. I want to be a partner with them. I can't buy this stock. They go public. I can now buy this stock. Outstanding. Why do companies go public? I mean, it's so much, you could stay private. You don't have all the scrutiny, regulation, uh, board of directors telling you what to do, could fire you. Why do companies go public? So I think the short answer is to get more money or to get access to a broader group of investors. If you think a company is raising money in the private markets, that's a group of investors. That's a small pool of, of cash that they have access to. When you add public investors into that group, you get a much larger pile of money. And so companies need money to, to hire employees, to do R and D, to build their business. And so going public, uh, allows them to raise money from a much broader and deeper swath of investors around the world. Okay, there's all, that's one reason. Give me another reason from the employee side. If I, you and I owned a company, right? Yes, right. Of course. Why would we go public? Of course. So when a company is private, it's much harder to sell shares. If you're an employee and you want to put your kid into private school or you want to put a down payment on a house. Uh, and you have to sell shares. That's a very hard thing to do. The market is very illiquid, it's dark. Um, and so when a company goes public, any employee that has shares can go and sell those shares at any time they want. And it just goes onto the exchange and um, and anybody can come along and buy it. And so for employees who, you know, sort of have uh, been working in many cases years for these startups, uh, they want a way to, uh, to sort of cash out their investment and and to move that money into other other pro productive ways of, right. of buying yeah, liqui of, of things. And liquefy their wealth, you know, that's really it. Yeah, There's no way. Right, exactly. Right, so I could work for the company for 10 years at, at, at really, you know, 100 hours a week at really terrible per, right. per hour wages. But the golden ticket is the shares I'm getting, which mean – not, don't mean much until the company is able to go in the public market because then I could sell them and, and, and liquefy my investments. Right? That's right. Okay. It's very hard. It's worth saying it's very hard to sell in the private markets. I mean, you don't get, you don't get what the shares should be worth. 
you have it takes months of writing contracts and sending contracts back and forth. So that's not attractive to any employee. It's really, you know, you want your company to be public. You want to be able to sell these shares at any mo- at a moment's notice. So if a company if a company has enough money, they don't need they don't need public money. And their employees are pretty cool with the incentives that they already have in place. Uh, isn't there a regulatory reason when a company has too many investors that they have to go public? Yes, that's a very good point. Uh, the SEC has rules. I think it's now 2,000 investors. Right. If you have more than 2,000 investors, you have to go public. And I think regulators basically think at that point, you're a really big company and you should you should have some obligation to share your financial metrics and your performance with the broader uh, world or the broader financial markets. Yeah. And, you know, prior to, I think, the Jobs Act of 2012, uh, it was only 500. So, you know, that's, that's right. where Facebook had to go public. And But post that, it was a great thing for companies because let's face it, man, to go public is a double-edged sword. You know, you now have a whole new set of bosses as a, as a uh, CEO or a founder of a company and you're under much more scrutiny and you watch your daily fortunes go up and down with the stock market, which could be very, very distracting when you have a long-term view. Yeah, I mean, if you talk to founders, they'll many of them will tell you they would prefer to stay private forever. Uh, obviously, employees don't like that for the reasons we've talked about. But um, uh, you know, one of the one of the things I say in my book is that really going public, becoming public companies, is a good thing for the system because private companies have to submit themselves to more scrutiny. Uh, we learn more about how their business is performing. And so that, um, you know, sunshine is a great medicine. And so that really brings some needed scrutiny and some helpful scrutiny to these companies. Right. Uh, okay. So those are the reasons companies go public. You discussed, discussed an IPO with us. But I want, I want you to share the, the story of Steve Jobs. And when they were looking, when he was looking to take Apple make that a public company, how in three questions, he just found out that the Wizard of Oz was nothing more than a guy standing behind a curtain because with all the charade and everything, it's very, very expensive and it's a very rigged system. Yeah, I mean, when I was reporting the the book and I came across this story, I mean, it was just, uh, it was gold because in a very short amount of time, as you mentioned, Steve Jobs just cuts right to the center of the the conflict that's at the heart of the IPO and just calls his bankers out on it. And it's just short, sweet, and it shows the man's brilliance. And and it really, it was in 1980 when Apple went public and he's sitting in a conference room uh, in San Francisco's financial district, sitting down with his bankers, trying to come up with the price of the shares that uh, Apple should, um, should sell at in its IPO. And the bankers want to tell him that, hey, Steve, you know, we think you should sell the shares for $18. And Steve sort of hears them out. And then he says, but I've been talking to people and they tell me that I think I can sell the shares for 25, 26, 27. And the bankers tell, well, maybe, but 18 is our recommendation. And he says, and who, who are you, who are going to get these shares at $18? Aren't they going to go to your best clients? Steve Jobs says to the bankers and the bankers say, well, yeah, our best clients will will get them, but they'll be good Apple shareholders. You know, they they jump to interject. 
And he says, and won't they be terribly happy when they get the shares for $18 and then they can turn around and sell the shares for 25, 26, 27. And the bankers hesitate a little bit and they say, well, yes, I guess they will be. And and then Job says, and you're going to charge me 8% to do that? Like, and he just, he just, you know, cut right to the chase. And uh, I, you know, I opened the book with that anecdote and it just perfectly forms the uh, the questions and that you and I have been talking about and that people have been talking about the IPO uh, business. And it's this idea that bankers agree to sell the shares for these companies at too low of a price at the $18 in Apple's case, when in reality, they could sell them for many dollars more. Um, but the people that are getting the shares at $18 are only institutions. That's really the sort of the crux of the IPO business when so, it was founded. So, wait a second, so, the, so the, yes. the shares are allocated on a very small percentage basis because this is like, uh, in, a, in a rising market, this is like guaranteed money, right? They're going to open up at a higher price. So if you got them at, a, I think before you even, you pay 18 and you could turn around and flip it for 25, 26, in some cases goes up 100% or more. So it's found right. money. So the, correct me if I'm wrong here, the investment bank or the underwriters, when the company's going public, allocates these shares to their best customers who are doing commission or transactional business. It's more like a, a cherry on the cake. It's to, it's, it's, it's to keep them doing business with them. Is that right? Yes, that's right. We And I think we should take a step back and thank you for slowing me down a little bit. I've been writing about this for two years and uh, I get excited about it and uh, and jump ahead. But investment bankers are not talking to retail investors and they're not talking to my parents. They're not talking to you and I. They're only talking to mutual funds and hedge funds. So when it comes time for them to do an IPO, to price a company's shares, the only investors they're talking to are the mutual funds and the hedge funds. And those are the investors that are, that are getting the company shares. You and I, individual investors, don't get the shares until the stock starts trading the next day. Right. And let me just interject the there. The reason that they're giving these shares or offering these shares for sale to the hedge funds and the institutions is because of what reason? Altruistic? They, they want to help their widows and orphans funds. Why are they allocating shares to multi-billion dollar funds? So the bankers and, and the companies, in some respect, will tell you that the investors getting these shares should be long-term holders of the stock. So people who really believe in the company's story and believe in the company's growth aspects. And in many cases, that's true. But when you really dig into the process, you see that the, the bankers have some, some real financial incentives to give the shares to the investors who pay them a lot of money in trading commissions and other uh, fees. So it's really difficult to disentangle the financial incentive that the bankers have to give the shares to certain of their favorite investors uh, or clients. As a treat, as a reward. Those investors, as a reward for doing business. As a, re as a reward. Exactly. Exactly. Or, um, yeah, or the, the investors that supposedly are going to be good, loyal, uh, shareholder. Yeah, let, let's cut the crap on that right off the bat because that ain't happening. <laughs> you know, and I know because that volume that they have the first day is not these guys holding it long term. 
All right. So now that's incentive number one, chalk that up for the bankers, right? So the bankers want to get those shares into hands uh, that reward them with future business. Now, like everything in life, there's a price and the people paying that price are, is the company, the company's treasury, the employees, and that's because of what? That's because the incentives that the bank that the bankers have to reward their best customers lead them to price the shares at low at a lower value than where they might otherwise do that. So, in in the Apple case, they have an incentive to sell Apple shares for eighteen dollars to their investors instead of charging their investor, their clients higher, uh, higher amount, you know, $20, $22, more, $20, more accurately, $24. the truer value of the underlying worth of the business, right? Okay. Yeah, so that's so right. it's their incentive to, if the underlying worth of the business is worth, let's say a jobs fell 25, 26, if they were to do it at 22 or 23, right? Their favorite customers who were getting these shares might see it I don't know, 10% pop between 223 and 25. But if they offer give it at a lower price, they're able to say, wow, I just made you a 40 or 50% return in a heartbeat. You keep doing business with me. And the one who pays for this is the company because once they sell those shares, and this is what I learned from your book, once they sell those shares at the opening, at the predetermined price, that IPO price, any fluctuation up or down is nothing to them. That's right. So there's a company in my book, Unity Software. They, and this example makes it very clear. They were selling 25 million shares. And so when they were thinking about what price to set those shares at, the CFO was very specifically thinking, if we can sell these shares for $1 more, that means $25 million more to our company that we can then use for software development. If we can sell them for $2 more, that's 50 million. And so the fact that Unity sort of had this round number of shares they were selling makes it a great example that you to look at for how much money companies are potentially missing out on. In, in sort of the, um, on Twitter and in the marketplace of ideas, that's called leaving money on the table. Um, and uh, that's really what people, critics of the IPO market, argue against, right. that underpricing the shares, which the bankers are doing, leaves money on the table that, that could otherwise go to the companies right. and even more for so, software development and employees. Right, and even more so yeah. if these shares doubled in price that day, the company could leave hundreds of millions of dollars on the table that were eaten up by institutions who made the gains and nothing goes to the company. Right. And right. Or, or less goes to the company. Certainly. Yes. Yes. It, it's an economic rent in the, in the pure theory. But, but also there's another thing which I, which I learned from you is that um, the company could have raised the same amount of money by selling fewer shares if it was priced at a higher amount. So uh, here a company, as, as an owner of a company, you never want to dilute your shares. You never want right. to have, you want to sell as few as possible to make the most. The bankers, on the other hand, the underwriters is doing the exact opposite. They want to sell as many as they can at a lower price as possible 
to create that buzz and to get that first day pop, which does nothing right. for me, which does nothing for me as an owner other than six months from now when I can sell. And by the way, that's another rigged system is I can't sell for six months or so. Is that right? They lock up periods. That's the traditional model. That's right. We can't. So you and I own, you know, Campbell and Mizrahi widgets. We go public. We can't sell our shares. Yet those guys could flip them back and forth 50 times before the closing bell. And we have to sit there and just suck it up. That's right. Now, one of the arguments I make in the book is that the d- direct listings, which we'll, I'm sure we'll get to, um, and it, it certainly we talk about it in the book, gave companies a lot more leverage in their conversations with bankers. And so that six months Wait, hang on, has hang now on. been don't, whittled don't, away. Don't even go there. Don't even go there yet because we, uh, there's another step <laughs> which, I want, sure. which I really want you to, 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 to speak to because it absolutely is fascinating. So now to do this, to take my company public, to take our shares and put them on the open market, uh, to liquefy our position, to raise us money, you as an investment banker are going to charge me a fee to do that. So you're going to charge me a fee to lower the price in a sense, because you're really not, your incentive is not to get me the highest possible price on the, on the, on the IPO. Your incentive is to take care of where your bread is buttered, which is with your clients. That's like, you know, I remember my father was a warehouse manager, his boss, he used to give him a turkey. This is the turkey for Thanksgiving. So here it is. Uh, on the and what's what's happening there is that when they do that, when they um, they price it lower and um, 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 uh, have that pop there, they're charging for this. The underwriters are charging a fee on the total amount raised. So I'm not getting. Let's use twenty dollars a share. I'm not getting twenty dollars a share. What am I getting? That's right. Yeah, you're getting $20 less some fee. And that fee uh, is typically 5 to 7% for the bankers. And so uh, it hasn't changed in years. I mean, if, I guess if you're a Facebook or an Airbnb, you can negotiate that fee a little bit. Okay, but bottom line, you're being paid um, a if fee. You're you, many other. You, you're, it's costing you a fee for the luxury, the benefit of Wall Street mavens to sell my shares to their most favored clients who odds are will flip them as quick as possible, which were priced low enough to have that first day pop. And then CNBC says, what a successful IPO. The thing went up 80% today. And I never understood that until I read your book. The only ones who should be happy about that 80%, they're shilling for the underwriters. Because from the company's perspective, they should not be happy <laughs> that the right. stock went up 80%. You don't want that first day pop. That's right. Yeah, you. I think you really want a very small pop, ten to thirty percent. Okay. Because employees do see the stock price rising in the days and weeks after the IPO, and that does lead to some soft psychological oh, no. morale boost. One hundred percent. You know, but, everyone starts to buy cars and Rolex watches. I got that. I totally got <laughs> that. But but you, you, let's 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 invert. We don't want to see the price go down. You know, fifty percent. That's not what we want. So I think the right. first example you come up with of the the the, uh, the 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 C starting to change here was with Google, mm. right? Walk us through how Google did something a little different than going through this process. That's right. So Google, even 
Google went public in 2004, and even in 2004, its business model was largely what it is today, which is selling ads on the internet. And so uh, they were auctioning off thousands, hundreds of thousands of ads every day. And the Google founders, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, thought if we can auction ads, why can't we auction shares? Why do we need to go to an investment bank to sort of tell us how to do an IPO? and to find investors, they said, let's just auction our shares off to the highest bidders. And so they went out to try to do that. And, um, you know, first of all, they sort of ran into regulatory uh, uh, skepticism. You know, the SEC did not like what they were trying to do. The SEC was worried that individual investors were gonna get ripped off in some way. And so the SEC really slowed them down. I think they had to put out nine or 10 amendments of their securities, their IPO prospectus. Um, but guess who else didn't like it? Investment bankers didn't like it and institutional investors didn't like it. I mean, they had a good thing going with traditional IPOs and uh, institutional investors did. And they said, why should I have to do an auction? Why should I even have to play around with this. I'd much rather talk to my investment banker and tell him or her how many shares I want and uh, and get my shares. That's the way it's always been done. And the investment banker, for the reason we've talked about, said, why do we want to put these shares up to an auction? We'd rather hand allocate them to our chosen clients. And so um, there were a lot of forces uh, sort of arrayed against uh, Google and um, and it didn't work out the way they wanted it to to go. You know, they they initially tried to sell shares as high as one hundred thirty five dollars. Uh, they didn't get as much interest as they thought because a lot of people were scared off by the auction, and they ended up selling them for eighty five dollars on the day of their IPO. Now, the next day it went up to a hundred, and it never looked back. So, talk to people who financial historians, Google employees, executives, and they'll tell you Google's IPO went great. Thank you very much. Uh, we're quite happy with how everything went. But in the days and weeks and months after Google IPO, you saw lots and lots of news reports, anonymously sourced bankers talking in, in, uh, in on the front page of the Wall Street Journal saying how Google's attempts to do something different Failed. Uh, completely failed. Yeah. And yeah, and it was, it was, a, it was terrible. Yeah, and yeah. so don't, you know, don't try to change it. Yeah. I, you know, I just want to dig a little deeper into that. They, you know, the company, the stock price rose. I remember reading uh, uh, the, um, uh, I think the S1 at the time. And I said, what a, what a profitable business. You never, I didn't say I was the only one who said that, but it was, you know, selling clicks and, you know, uh, keywords was such an amazing business. And, um, uh, they did accomplish more or less what they wanted because you didn't have that one day pop. It was only a 15% or so pop between 85 and 100. Right. Now, the reason they could not have gotten more, just my humble opinion on this, is because scared, but it was a new business. People still weren't, you know, grasping what this business was. And I do remember at the time, I think it was 02 or 03, 02 or 03, I read an article, I think it was in Forbes or Fortune, about the algorithms how it searches for keywords. I said, holy smokes. I didn't quite understand it, but you knew it was a great business. 
You know, it was it, it look it had all and I remember using Gmail and and using them as Google search as soon as they came out. I, I loved it. Uh, and um, uh, I think the key thing here, from my perspective, the way I see this, is that that fifteen percent pop, which was pretty cool because it wasn't enormous. They didn't leave a lot of money on the table. And it was also once the business uh, was more um, um, palpable, where it was more understandable. That's what I think set the stock rising, not the flippers. That's right. right? It, was, it was the valuation of the business because at $100, it was still, and I remember Bill Miller at the time who bought in on the IPO. I do remember he did because he made mention of it at a conference. Uh, he said this thing was underpriced. It was priced, even 135 yep. was priced at the wrong number. Yeah, so just to build, you mentioned Bill Miller. I mean, this auction uh, process that Google uh, introduced was so foreign that Bill, to, to investors that Bill Miller actually hired experts in auction theory to help him figure out the price, uh, how to, how to uh, structure his bids and, uh, and it helped him. I mean, he got a huge part of that IPO and uh, obviously Google performed uh, very well after it. Yeah. But, yeah. You know, you know, you talk about it being sort of an unknown or not quite established business yet. I mean, this was 2004, so we're coming out of the dot-com crash. Google was sort of the first big IPO to to come down the pike after all of that carnage. So there were still a lot of people who were, um, who were burned and who were still wary of, um, you know, high growth tech companies and whether they could live up to their promise. So that certainly didn't help. And, um, and if you recall their IPO or the, the interest, you recall the call was for Google on their search page. They have no advertising. Yahoo at mm. the time had their homepage is full of advertising for search. Uh, here, Google is just the way it is now with a, you know, just a blank a kind of, a, you know, box to put in. And people said that these people, they don't know what they're doing. You know, it was, and, Google, and Yahoo was ahead of them. There was AltaVista. There were a couple, I forget all the searches back in the day. Yeah, that's uh, right. Not searches. Uh, uh, yeah, web, web, um, Web searches and uh, you know it. It if if you didn't if you didn't understand how they were making money on the on the uh, on uh, on keywords, you missed it because all these others were making right. money on advertising on the on the homepage, especially and all those things. Google came up with I'm going to show you an algorithm. So I think maybe perhaps I'm not sure I don't remember, but I think. That was a big part of the mispricing as well, is they didn't understand the business or the business model. Mm -hmm. It could be, I don't know. You know better. Yeah. No, that makes sense. But, um, but you know, coming out of Google with with it not going as, as well as some people would have liked, or uh, it really gave an opportunity for the naysayers to to say, you know, don't change this process. You know, a few others tried to do an auction like Google sort of before the financial crisis. Uh, Rackspace was one. Uh, I think they IPO'd in uh, the same the same month that Bear Stearns was bailed out or something, I think. Um, but but largely the traditional IPO was had didn't change. Uh, and so any thoughts at innovating it or introducing sort of new elements of it died away with Google. Right. Until really Spotify, Spotify yeah. started thinking about doing something different in like around 2016. Okay. 
Walk us through Spotify because, first of all, here's a company located in a pretty cold part of the world. <laughs> you know, they live in, I, I think the, the CEO said, yeah, your people are living on beach houses. We're living in 400 square foot apartments. And, you know, sure. we need that yeah. money. You know, to, I want to make that money for my, for my employees, not for your rich guys to get richer. So what did Spotify, the CEO was... Um, Daniel Ack. Daniel Ack, brilliant guy. Yep. He, he gamed the system. He knew exactly what was going on. Just give us the highlights of that and how, I, I think you position them as the first company to really uh, start the fire here, right? That's right. So Spotify CEO was Daniel Ack and his CFO was this guy, Barry McCarthy, who'd been the longtime CFO at Netflix when Netflix was still trying to sort of establish its business model and um, figure out what it was going to do. And Spotify had no need to raise money. So they had about a billion dollars or more in the bank, but they wanted to go public for this reason that we talked about earlier. They wanted to give employees and early investors uh, liquidity, basically an easy way to sell shares if they wanted to. Let, let me interrupt and you. So Barry you, McCarthy, wait, let me interrupt because you, you do a yeah. fantastic job. Uh, describing this because it really crystallized it. You take a lot of uh, the or theory and you put flesh to the bone. You have these guys living in Sweden, or in Stockholm, where right. Spotify is. And these people are working 100 hours a week. It's dark most of the time. It's freezing cold in the winter times. They're living in 400. You know, the Swedes are not glamorous in terms of, you know, spending on, 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 on a whole bunch of uh, luxury. They're working out of 400, 400 square feet apart, foot apartments, and these guys have not been able to cash in on the growth of Spotify. So now I want you to now that I set that for you, that, now tell me how the CEO said this system that currently is working for IPO is not a fair one for us. Right. So. So they were really trying to to give employees liquidity, you know, let them buy a house, uh, uh, again, you know, spend money in other ways. And they also didn't want to issue shares uh, in a way that would dilute the, them or other investors anymore. And so Barry McCarthy set out to figure out, hey, is there a way for us to go public without issuing, without selling new shares. That's how, that's what an IPO, an IPO is, is new, a company selling new shares. But he said, but we want to be public and we're happy to make our financials uh, clear and, um, you know, be very transparent about, about all of that. And so he spent uh, six or nine months really talking to lawyers, talking to other people whose opinion he respected and, coming up, hey, it can just sort of go public without issuing shares. And most people said, you're crazy. Like the traditional IPO model is the way to do it. And I'm sorry, you're going to have to uh, issue some new shares and dilute your existing shareholders to, to do that. That's just the way the system works. And because of, I think, because of who the CFO was really, um, which means you know, he, he knew the financial market. Yeah, and he had a lot of credibility because when he was at Netflix, the company yes. soared. So he had a lot of street That's creds. Right. right. Right, exactly. And he had in in a in a partner as the CEO, Daniel Eck, 
you know, loved change, loved to do things differently, was totally open to, uh, you know, going on the road less traveled. So together, the two of them figured out a way to essentially directly list their shares on the exchange. And so this was taking the existing shares that had been sold to or issued to employees and investors and just putting them on the New York Stock Exchange so that they could uh, trade freely. And so in 2018, that's exactly what Spotify did. So they went to- But to do that, yeah, go ahead. No, no, go, go, please. I was going to say, but to do that, they had to talk to the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission. They had to talk to officials at the New York Stock Exchange and both um, expressed real reservations in the beginning. But because of the credibility of, of Barry McCarthy and um, his insistence that this is the way they were going to do it, uh, he pushed it through and um, and and they did it. How did they exactly get the shares listed without giving up anything? Yeah, so it was really a process of talking to existing investors and putting them in touch. Sorry, my uh, my throat's a little dry um, and putting them in touch with people who wanted to buy. And to do that, they actually did hire investment bankers to act more, more as advisors, not really as the underwriters in the way that they would in a traditional IPO. And so the investment banks talked to the investors who wanted to sell their existing shares and the employees, and they went out there and they found other investors who wanted to buy the shares. And so they decided that the way they were gonna do this was they were, they were gonna pull all of this activity into one single trade on the morning that this that the shares were going to start trading. And so really the way it works is over the course of three or four hours in the morning, um, the investment banker and the company talk to everybody who wants to sell. They talk to everybody who wants to buy and they try to put them together and find a, a price that where they can match them off. And then when they do that, then they talk to the New York Stock Exchange and the shares are are released for trading. So basically what they did is they orchestrated one big trade between all the buyers that they accumulate over three years and all the sellers. That's the first trade, and then let the games begin. Then the, the then the every subsequent trade on the exchange was off of that one as, as an anchor, a starting That's point. That's right. Exactly. And guess what? That's how every stock is open for trading in the morning by the right. New York Stock Exchange. So it's, you know, he had to figure out the the legal aspect and the regulatory aspect, but it's not like he was creating something out of thin air. Right. And yet everybody that he went to and said, I want to do it this way. I said, oh, you, you can't do that. This is, this is crazy. You've got to do it the traditional IPO way. So right. he really tapped into uh, an existing mechanism and, and really used it for Spotify did really used it for uh, their purposes. Right. So if we were a company, if you and I were a, pub, a private company, we're going public, the best people that we'd want, the best investors are those who believe in our mission and going to hold the shares for long term. So avoid the crazy volatility and fluctuation, which is nothing more than a distraction to us and our workers building the business. So one company you mentioned here in the book, Unity, they spent an awful lot of time creating these master spreadsheets of every investor they met 
And what they did is they went ahead and circum- really circumvented the whole process of the underwriter allocating to their favorite people. Want to just share that? Yeah, that's right. So the investment bankers will come to a company and they'll say, one of the things that we're going to give you in this IPO is we're going to give you access to institutional investors and we're going to tell you which ones are the best. And so many well, the, companies- The best are to hold, con- the best that would be long-term shareholders. Yes, exactly. And so many companies take them at their word and lo and behold, some of those investors uh, sell the next day and they're not great partners for the company for reasons that we've discussed. And what Unity decided is, let's go meet these investors ourselves. Let's sort of cut out the bankers and let's do all the hard work ourselves of researching uh, the best investors out there, talking to them about our story, hearing how interested they are in us. And as they did that, they uh, created a, a huge spreadsheet with each row for the investor and lots and lots of columns of different attributes. And so, um, you know, they held a cocktail party, for example, where uh, there were no bankers there, but they just invited like a bunch of investors that they really liked and that they wanted to get to know. And so when it came time for Unity to allocate their shares in the IPO, they had this huge spreadsheet and they could they could very easily see the basically the investors that they determined where they're the, were going to be the best long-term shareholders. And so in cases where maybe the bankers came to them and said, Hey, we have this investor. We, you know, we think they're going to be a great shareholder. You know, unity could go to their spreadsheet and say, well, we talked to them at our cocktail party and they didn't seem that interested or something, or, you know, we, we had a meeting with them and, and they asked, you know, not very smart questions. But Unity sort of took some of the power back from the investment bankers and um, played a much more active role in allocating to uh, the only the shareholders that they thought would be their best partners. Yeah, which for was them which, over the long which term. their incentive was to get long-term shareholders, where the investment bankers their incentive is to sell to their to give these as a re, as a as a gift to their best clients. And I remember in the book, you described some of these, the, some of the underwriters, bankers, and hedge they were pretty pissed that they weren't getting allocation. Yeah, for sure. I mean, some of them come to uh, expect this or think that, uh, or, um, you know, that, that, that they're entitled to some allocation. Right. And, uh, and that's just not true. So let's fast forward. We're, at it. We're running close out of time. I, I highly recommend folks, if you want to learn more about IPOs and why the public is the sucker, you know, if you're at a, at a uh, poker table and after, after a little while, you don't know who the patsy is, you're it. You're it. When you hear, well, the IPO jumped and was successful and people, they are buying at the worst possible price. <laughs> They're getting in, you know, it's it just absolutely ridiculous. And I think you had uh, here Professor Jay Ritter, who I think has every stat. Uh, I think, uh, you know who gave me that? Uh, Spencer Jacob um, of the Wall Street Journal, when we had him on the show. Oh, of course. Uh, yeah, about the meme stocks. He wrote a fantastic book on that. Uh, he said, if you want to know anything about IPOs and performance and everything, go to his website. And uh, Ritter's website is just shows you in black and white how terrible, how terrible these are as investments. You know, one year, two years out, it's just... Uh, you know, there's always time to buy it. Uh, don't buy it. Don't buy when everyone else, when then when you have that first day pop, because you're buying from people who are looking to sell and got the stock for virtually nothing or, you know, you big profit baked in. 
So, That's right. so where where are we today? You and I go public in 2020 in October. Where is 2022? I said 2020. 2022. Where is the marketplace now? It's a great question. Um, there have there have not been any IPOs uh, in the U.S. Um, in a long time. There have not been any tech IPOs uh, in many months. We're in we're actually in the longest drought for tech IPOs since the dot com crash 20 years ago. I think this year. Um, I think this year we only had around five billion dollars or so, which is which is which is a puddle. It's nothing. It's, yeah, I saw a stat that was even half of that. Like yeah. two and a half billion or something. So it's it's nothing. Um, it's you know, we're starting to get signs that it's opening up. Uh, Intel is looking to sell Mobileye, oh, yeah. one of their uh, business units, and uh, so people are talking about maybe we'll see a couple tech company IPOs at the end by the end of this year, and um, so that would be nice. That would be nice to sort of see that come back. One of the big questions that I was uh, grappling with and that people mentioned to me in the writing of this book is the spot the Spotify direct listings, other companies did that. We talked about the lockup a little bit being changed, um, in the last couple of years. Will companies still have the leverage that they've had over their investment bankers in the last, now that the mark, now that it's a bad market, or is everybody going to go run back to the traditional IPO and sort of just hand over the control to the investment bankers in much the way that they've done over the last 40 years? And so I think it, we, it really remains to be seen whether companies are going to continue to have sort of some uh, some leverage and some ability to craft the deal for themselves uh, in a down market. Yeah. And so I'd like to believe so. And many of the people I spoke to like to believe so, but it sort of remains to be seen. Yeah, you know, I think, uh, it's, you know, I was thinking about that uh, this morning before um, before we got on the air. I think it, it really depends. It depends on the company mm. because certain companies are just going to want to liquefy, liquefy and get money as quick as possible. And uh, this pop, this, look, you know, it, when it... Uh, any type of up movement in a down market is a happy day, right? So uh, as long as it didn't go down, I'm happy. Uh, but right. that's not the same thing as going to be in a bull market. But, you know, I remember you, you wrote here that if an IPO wasn't subscribed 10 or 20 times, it was considered a failure, oversubscribed. So I think mm-hmm. it's good. I, I, just my two cents worth, and, you know, you're the expert, I'm not. But just knowing how people react and, and people's behaviors – I think it's going to depend on the market environment we're in and how badly uh, a company needs money. Because mm-hmm. what you brought up in this book, Unity, for example, had to create a whole new computer interface uh, because they didn't like Goldman Sachs mm-hmm. interface to do this, this, this trade. Uh, the regulatory hurdles, which caused millions and millions of legal dollars. Uh, the time, the amendments that you have to keep filing and the new files you know what, let me just pay, I, I, I got to keep the lights on or I'm going right. to lose people to uh, other companies if I don't get their, their stocks, uh, uh, if they don't get their, uh, their, their options liquefied into cash so they can pay their rent or buy a car or what have you. So, so uh, you know, I think it's going to, de- just my two cents on this, I think it's going to depend mm-hmm. on the size of the company, uh, how desperate they are for cash 
and how much work, because, you know, you read this, this is a lot. If Spotify didn't have, um, what's his name, uh, uh, McCarthy? Barry McCarthy. They, they didn't have McCarthy. Yeah. It could never have been never done. Uh, it's in mm-hmm. my opinion of that. You know, you look, uh, everyone you bring in here, uh, even um, uh, Airbnb, uh, Snowflake, for example, uh, you know, they had the right people in the right places who knew the game, who had credibility. Uh, right. If you're, you know, Joe's hamburger stand and you have this new widget, I don't know, it's going to be kind of tough to go against a Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley if they do decide to even take you. You know, 7% will be a good number that you'd be happy to pay. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of startups turn to debt, actually, mm. for, um, you know, startups don't typically don't like debt, but because the IPO markets are closed, a lot of them are, are turning, are issuing convertible bonds or otherwise uh, borrowing to extend, to raise more money and try to extend their runway a little bit more, but they, they won't be able to do that indefinitely. And so to your point, um, you know, the need for money may lead some of these companies into the IPO market, uh, even if it's a down market or even if it's very volatile. You know, like I, I forgot who said it, but you know, cash is like oxygen. You don't think about it till you need it. And then when you do need it, what, you know, you're willing to pay whatever it is to get it or else you have to close the lights. Yeah, that's right. You know, so uh, it depends. But, but uh, you know, I think, I, I hope, you know, five, ten years from now we can look back on this and see your book is really a, a pivoting point as to where Wall Street, uh, you know, this revolution, as you say, sparked a revolution, which I think is going to be an evolution. I don't think the, the underwriters mm-hmm. and the investment banks are going to stand still uh, and say, we're here. We'll maybe tier it. Because if you remember back in the days of mutual funds used to have uh, 8.5% loads, commissions, and then with no-load funds. No, you don't want a no-load fund. You have no salesman. Why would you want that? They don't direct you. Here, pay me 8.5% or so. And then eventually, as no-load funds gained traction, people weren't paying 8 a quarter, 8.5, I forgot what it was. They went down to 4. And then you had low-low funds. Until now, there's no such thing, or for what I know, as a loaded fund. But it took a good 30 years. Right. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons for writing the book was really just to open the IPO market to to peep to anybody, so that you can really understand um, through the work that I did and talking to these people how how it works and how if you're a startup employee or a startup executive or an investor, so that you can really arm yourself with information so that you. Um, can better take advantage of the system. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know I, I, I think the thing going public right here. If you, if you're if you're the public, uh, read this book. You'll never buy another IPO again. If you do, you buy it at your mm-hmm. own peril. Uh, if you're a startup, a CEO, a founder of a company, you have so many great models to work off of. You have the Spotify model. You have the Unity model. You have the Airbnb model. You have Google. You could take that, so at least you walk into the meeting like Steve Jobs did with a lot more knowledge. Uh, you know, look, the, the, these founders are fantastic entrepreneurs. They're not phenomenal right. business people. <laughs> you know, that, that's why they have to hire them, and that's why Wall Street comes in and, you know, does their tap dance and their, you know, their, 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 you know, their private planes, their dinners, their driving Uber to show, look, I'm really in the company, I really care about the company. It's a very, very competitive. You have the smartest and and the brightest people trying to get a piece of that fee. So mm-hmm. uh, they will, you know, overwhelm you, and uh, they will at least at least now the founders and CEOs and 
And CFOs will have a, 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 a playbook to go off of, which I think that's where I think you, I, I think you did a great service in that sense. I was looking at it from the public's point, but you just have to show Professor Jay Ritter stuff. You'll never want to buy an IPO. It just sure. doesn't make any sense. But from a business person's perspective, a founder's perspective, this book tells you, my gosh, we've been taking, you know, just read the, the price of the book is worth just reading the job story. Right. Yeah. I mean, 10 years ago, I don't think any startup founders even thought that they had a choice in the, in doing an IPO. The bankers arrived and they said, but, and we've been doing it this for years and years and we're the experts and, and, you know, so many of them said, okay, fine. Like you, you're telling me, you're the expert, you're telling me how it's done. But the argument that you're making and that I would, I would like to make is read the book. You realize you've got a lot more uh, leverage, you know, it's your company, you've yeah. got a lot more leverage in that conversation. And if you educate yourself about how it works, you'll, you know, you'll have a much better outcome, I think. Yeah, no, just last point that, that I could talk to you for all day about this, because there's so many thoughts in my head. But this, the, the founder is so diligent in not diluting his, his or her company or giving away shares. Every round is, is carefully planned. Uh, and then here, you're pissing money in the wind and just giving out large chunks of your company and mm. really at prices, I think you bring up in the book, do you imagine if they had a CEO say, he just lost us half a billion dollars? And that's what happens if your IPO pops 100% or so and uh, three, four, five hundred million dollars is left on the table. That's what you just did. You didn't, you didn't add value. You detracted. Yeah, that's the argument that the venture capitalist Bill Gurley has made. I mean, if if a company, if a CEO lost the company five hundred million dollars, he'd be, be he or she'd be out the next yeah. day. But uh, but it happens in IPOs all the time, and nobody really blinks an eye. Yeah, Dakin, we got to have you back on the show a year or two down when the market settles down and the bull market starts up again, and maybe we can discuss maybe a year and a half or two years from now what happened to the IPO market, and and maybe you're right, maybe it is a hybrid, maybe it's a, just a evolution, uh, you know, that's, now that you got the ball rolling and you, you did it in really, folks, if you never read an investment book, it's not an investment book. It reads like a novel. You get the players, you get everything. It's really exciting. Uh, um, Dakin, thanks so much for coming on the show. Folks, the name of the book is Going Public, How Silicon Valley Rebels Loosen Wall Street's Grip on the IPO and Sparked a Revolution. Dakin, this is your first book, right? It is. That's right. When's your next one coming out? I'm working on it. Everybody's asking, I've got, but I've got a couple ideas. So um, we'll see. Yeah, people don't realize. Uh, I'll bring it. I'll bring it on the show. Beautiful for people, sure. People don't realize this was two years of your guts <laughs> every right. day working and, and just the footnotes and the stuff. Oh, you know, uh, I think you got to be a masochist to write a book. But all right, you did a great <laughs> job, Dagan. Thanks so much, man. Continued success in all that you do, and thanks again. Yeah, thanks a lot, Charles. This is a real pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on The Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.